0: you. Today's Bible reading is taken from 1 John chapter 4, beginning at verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the saviour of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command... Anyone who loves God must also love his brother and sister. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Rachel.
1: So we're talking about God is love and we are beloved this morning. So let me pray for us. Father God, I pray that we, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen. It used to be thought that Christians were the most loving people, that they were the most charitable and generous, that they served the needs of the community, that they were the first to lend a hand. But I don't think that that's the way that people think anymore. I suspect that the world thinks that it has a monopoly on love, that it is much better than being loving the Christians. The Christians aren't loving at all, that they are bigoted, judgmental hypocrites, that they say they love, but in actuality, the church is not the place you turn to if you're after love. Think of a young person who is figuring out their sexual identity. Is the church the first place they'd go to for help? Think about the divorced woman. Is the church her first point of call? Think of your neighbors and friends. If they needed help, where would they turn? It's not the church. It's those who are most like them, those who can relate and Sadly, tragically, the identity of the church is these days more associated with hate than love. We may argue that it shouldn't be so, that people don't realize that we're loving, we must be, and the good that the church has done are acts for which we must be ashamed. In his book, One Blood, a story of 200 years of Aboriginal encounter with Christianity, Author John Harris says, it's an undeniable historical fact that Australian churches were complicit in this system of removing Aboriginal children from their families. And it makes for heartbreaking reading. To read of the missions that associated civilizing with Christianizing and churches benefiting from stolen land and barring children from using their language and taking them from their country, and their family, and their culture. Likewise, the Royal Commission into Child Sex Abuse in 2012 revealed a horrific number of victims, 58.6% of whom were molested in religious institutions, with more than half of the perpetrators being clergy. And there are thousands of people in Australia today who are scarred by sexual abuse in the church in a place that was meant to be safe. There are other sickening stories of brutal gay conversion therapy where people were given electric shocks and received exorcisms and prayed over for hours or even days to become heterosexual. No wonder people scoff when we talk about love. And if you have had any experiences of this sort with the church, I am deeply sorry it disturbs me that Christians have acted in this way. And that's on a large scale. I strongly suspect that there's people that, whom I've hurt and whom I've besmirched the name of Christ in their minds, too. Tragically, in one way or another, we are all hypocrites. Well, that's us. What about God? Well, for better or for worse, one of the tensions is that for people, what they see of us, they associate with him. That's what our passage says. They see God, or they see us being a liar about God. Generally speaking, I think the consensus, though, is much more positive for God. It's fairly easy to think about God being a God of love. There's a common misunderstanding that the Old Testament God was an angry God of judgment and that the New Testament God is a bit more nicer and loving. That assumption is mistaken, which we'll get to see soon why. But generally, people believe that if there is a God, God is a God of love, right? I've had people say to me things like, I like to think that God loves everyone. Or I like to think that I believe in a God of love. It's not necessarily that they want to have much to do with him, but they like to think that if they ran into him at the supermarket or the pub or on the last judgment, that he would be friendly and nice to them. They kind of picture, you know, like a grandfather or a Santa Claus. He knows if you're naughty or you're nice, but he just kind of laughs it off and rewards you anyway. Surely Jesus would be happy to have a beer and forget about all the other stuff. The view of God as loving is is pretty weak though. It's a sentimentalised version. It's a lame way to say that I don't really think there is a God, but if there is, I'm sure that he can mind his business or if not, he can see that I'm a good guy. I'm not sure that this attitude has much substance or rationality to it. Does a God of love mean a God who accepts everyone and everything without qualification? I'm not sure that we would even define love like that, no matter how inclusive we are. There are others that I've spoken to who have bitterly spitted out, God? What about God? I've prayed to him and he let this happen. How can you say to me that God loves me? They're angry and bitter. They don't think that God is loving at all. Perhaps they once did, but they no longer do. They can't make sense out of a life where God is love and things happen that don't seem to substantiate that. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you've heard over and over again that God loves you but you just don't believe it. Maybe there's something that happened to you or something that you've done that keeps you from believing that God loves you. Or maybe there's no obvious reason, but it's just a vague feeling. That when we talk about God loving us, you hear the words, but it doesn't really warm your heart. You just can't feel it to be true. I hope that wherever you sit this morning... You keep listening. Our identity is so closely linked with who God is, and that's how it should be. But perhaps we need to take a closer look at God and, in doing so, have a better understanding of who we are called to be. The assumptions that we make about God, we need to check with what He reveals in Scripture, so that we're actually getting to the truth about what He says and doesn't say about Himself. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at who God is and what he does before looking at us as the beloved. Who are we and how do we live out our identity? So firstly, in our 1 John passage, we read in verse 7, love comes from God. And more explicitly, we heard in verses 8 and 16, God is love. God is love. It's who he is. It's not just that God is loving or that God loves, but that he is love. Love is fundamental to the nature of God. In 2 Corinthians 13 verse 11, God is called the God of love and peace. He is the originator, the source of love, where all other love springs from. God's love can be defined as his eternal giving and sharing of himself. Within the Godhead, love has always been present. The God in the Bible is personal. He's not a force or an energy. He is someone whom we can have a loving relationship with and who exists in relationship for all eternity. The claim that God is love can only be justified in a Christian understanding of God. God, as distinct from creation, as one God, three persons, is necessary for God to be love. Because otherwise God would be contingent or dependent on creation to love because love needs to be shared. But the God of the Bible is eternally love. That's before creation was made. And because God is three in one, it's not self-love. It's not that God's, you know, looking in the mirror and saying to his reflection, I love you. But it's a genuine circulating love that is expressed through the Father and the Son and the Spirit as they give and they receive love. So God's love flows generously from who he is. It's not motivated by the need for repriosity from us. God's love is eternal, generous, consistent with his nature. From eternity past to eternity present and future, God has been defined by love. So when John says God is love, he is saying that love is bound up in the very nature of God. He isn't sometimes loving, as though you need to catch him on a good day, And as I was saying earlier, how people think that God wasn't loving in the Old Testament but kind of thought out in the New Testament, his love doesn't fluctuate like that, like ours. It's permanent and intrinsic to who he is. And so when he acts in judgment or in holiness, it isn't divorced from his love. Love is who God is. We can't reverse the statement though, however, and say love is God. Love is one of the attributes of God, but it can't sum up all that he is. Saying love is God deifies love and it waters down the God whom we speak of. It's not impersonal or abstract, it's not any old God or deity that is love. It's the personal God of the Bible. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when we read the list of explanations in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 about love, we're reading a list of who God is. We could just as easily say, God is patient, God is kind, God does not envy or boast or is not proud, God does not dishonour others, He is not self seeking. God is not easily angered. God keeps no record of wrongs. God does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. God always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And this is similar to the way that God described himself to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And as we heard in our psalm reading, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. So love is part of his being. God defines love. As an aside, I think that we're familiar with people saying these days love is love, meaning that it doesn't matter what form love takes, Love is love, It's any love is valid regardless of the orientation or gender identity. Love is a universal human experience and all forms of love are equal and valid. Love, according to this view, is self-defining. Yet we see from the Bible that God defines what love is. Love is not the uncaused object, <clears throat> But love derives its definition from God. And love is expressed in many different ways, both for God and for humans. Don Carson, in his book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, notes five ways that God expresses his love in the Bible there's the inner Trinitarian love, the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. There's God's providential love, that he loves all that he's made. He's a loving creator. There's God's yearning, salvific love, that he longs for everyone to be saved. There's God's elective love, where God shows a particular, effective, redemptive love to the elect, and God's conditional, covenantal love to those who belong to the covenant of God's people, God tells to remain in his love. So we need to distinguish the ways of talking about God's love. Otherwise, we can absolute one of those and our understanding of God's love becomes inappropriate. And similarly, for us humans, we have different forms of love. We have friendship love and familial love and we have romantic love. We have love for food and hobbies and other things that bring us joy. Love for a parent should look very different to love for a pet, for instance. And love for a child should look very different to the love for a spouse. We know this instinctively. When one type of love crosses into another type of love, we recognize that that's inappropriate. Sam Aubrey says that God is love, because sorry, because God is love, It means that he knows far more about love than we do. In our culture, we prize romantic and sexual love as the greatest form of love. Our culture, as you know, is saturated with songs and movies and books. Promoting that sexual love is the most satisfying and most important love of all. And if you don't have that type of love, you're missing out. But Christ is love, par excellence. His love is incomparable. And he never experienced that sort of sexual or romantic love, yet we couldn't say that he lacked love. And unfortunately, the church too. Here we often put marriage and family on a pedestal, which God doesn't, and have relegated other forms of love to something lesser. So all of us need to look to God to define love and to show us how to love God. Loving as God calls us to love shouldn't mean loving people less, but perhaps differently. And I actually think better and more deeply, and we'll pick this up later. So to summarize, God is the fountain of love. He is the source and the definer of love. And out of that overflow of love, We see what he does. In 1 John 4, 9 to 10, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God's love manifests itself through loving action towards us. God showed or revealed his love. The unseen love of God becomes visible in the work of sending his son into the world as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Paul says a similar thing in Romans 5 verse 8. He says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And famously, John chapter 3, verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is the goal of God's love, that we might live through him and be reconciled to the Father. Jesus is the best evidence that we have that God loves us. This is the proof that we can turn to again and again. God's love for us is not dependent on us or anything that we can offer Him. He's God, He's not lonely, He doesn't need us per se. In Deuteron- Deuteronomy chapter 7, it says, The Lord did not set His affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to our ancestors that he brought you out of, out of um, slavery with a mighty hand and redeemed you. So who are we? We are loved. God's love for us is independent of us. He is the initiator. He loves us because he does. And we saw in those passages that I read earlier that God's love towards us is when we don't love him. While we were still his enemies, while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And to demonstrate God's love in the Old Testament, he has one of his prophets, Hosea, act out. And in a, a parable of God's love with his people, God tells Hosea to go and marry a promiscuous woman and to have children with her. For like an adulterous woman, the land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord, he says. So Hosea marries a woman, Goma, and has a son with, him, with her. And he is to be named Jezreel to remind them of the sin of Israel. And she goes on to have a daughter and another son, which most presume that these children are not Hosea's because the text says a daughter or a son rather than his his daughter or son. And Hosea is asked to care for them and treat them as his own, these children of Goma's lovers. And their names mean not loved and not my people. This is pretty brutal. Goma continues to chase after her lovers and scorn Hosea's faithfulness. She does it publicly and unashamedly. Now by law, Hosea had the right to stone her to death, but God tells him to persist in loving her and to woo her back at great cost to himself. And later in Hosea chapter 11, God says, "'My people are determined to turn from me. "'How can I give you up? "'How can I hand you over? "'My heart is charged within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. God has every right to reject us. Because God is love, he instead buys us back through the costly death of his Son and gives us a place with him that we do not deserve. God says, I will show my love to the one called not my loved one. And I will say to those called, not my people, you are my people and I am your God. How does he do this? He does this through his son. See with what love Jesus acts towards those who are in the world's eyes, unlovely, unlovable. When a leper approaches Jesus and says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reaches out and touches him and says, I am willing, be clean. When Jesus sees a woman who has been crippled for 18 years, he goes to her, he lays his hands on her and heals her. And the leader of the synagogue is indignant because Jesus healed her on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, you hypocrites, you untie your donkey on the Sabbath to give it water. And should not this woman, this daughter of Abraham, be set free from what bound her? Over and over again, we read that Jesus had compassion on the people. He gives dignity to those who have been shamed. He feeds them, he heals them, he teaches them, and he forgives them. They come with their need with nothing more, and Jesus gladly restores them. This is the heart of God on display for us to see. This is who God is. Thomas Goodwin said, Christ is love covered in flesh. This is God's love for you. He sees your need and he isn't repelled or disgusted by you. Instead, he moves towards you in love. He knows your unfaithfulness of your flirting with other gods and idols and still he seeks you out to remind you of his unfailing love for you. His love is the best love that you can imagine. It's not a naive, rose-coloured glasses love. God knows exactly who we are. He's under no delusions of our sin, but he doesn't ignore it or excuse it. He deals with it himself at great cost through the death of his son. God's love is an an active, costly, sacrificial love. And as Jesus was baptised, the heavens were open, and the Father said, this is my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And we, through joining in Christ, can enter into this type of love where God looks at you now and says, this is my son, this is my daughter whom I love. With you I am well pleased. We are not loved because Jesus died for us. Jesus died for us because he loves us. His love comes first. That should free us from thinking that we need to somehow pay him back, as if we're in danger of him removing his love from us. It should free us from thinking that his love is obligatory. His posture towards us is love. We do not earn it. We don't deserve it. But this is God's desire for us to know his love, that we have been reconciled to himself through Christ. For God has said that he loves us. He's shown that through the sending of his son as a substitute. And we can cling on to that. And so it's out of the love for which we are loved that we love others. So again, to return to our passage, 1 John 4, verses 11 and 12. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us and from verse 19 and following. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen, cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. God's love for us becomes the motivation and the model for our love for others. God's love is firstly our motivation. We should heed the warning from the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2, not to forsake our first love. We can't run off fumes of vague memories of God's love. We need to constantly be returning to the fountain of love and drinking deeply from his waters. If we try to love others in our own strength, we'll soon find that it's impossible. Loving others who are like us we might manage, but loving those different to us requires a motivation that can only be found in God. Knowing God's love for us gives us a confidence and value without making us cocky or superior so that we can love others freely and not look down on them nor think too highly of them. When you know how deeply loved by God you are, you can love other people generously. There may be more grace required Christians that stretch you and that's a good thing. And as our church welcomes Others and opens its doors to people who have grown up with little to no exposure of Christianity, there will be people who live in ways that may be hard for us to relate to or to bear with. Love for those who are different to us is not natural or easy, but we must not close the doors to those that Jesus welcomes or set obstacles for them before extending grace. We should not be expecting a person to be living Christianly before knowing Christ. And even after that, we all know it's a process, don't we? So how do we love others? Well, we look to Jesus as our model. In John 15, it says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. How have we been loved by Jesus? We have been valued, we have been sought after We have been met where we're at in our need. We have been loved actively, sacrificially, generously. And when we do this, as a church, we demonstrate and make visible the unseen God in our midst. Our love towards others is evidence of our faith in Jesus and evidence of the love of God. I read that during the Rwandan genocide in 1994 that there were students from the IFES, the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students, who were both from the Hutu and the Tutsi tribes, and they were warned to separate from each other. But instead, they stood in a circle and held hands, and they said, we live together, united by Christ, and we will die together if necessary. And many of them did die. Their experience of God's love completely transformed the way that they looked at others and it brought unity instead of division. This type of love can only be found in knowing God's love for you and it's a love that our divided world desperately needs. I see this love here in this church. I see the way that you all love each other. It's one of the things that attracted me to this church and it's one of the things that I know attracts many others to this community. I loved reading this last week, the Facebook posts about people offering different pieces of furniture to help newcomers. I loved seeing the contributions to the food bank or Chris giving out his sourdough loaf to some unsuspecting person each week. People offering meals and praying for each other, caring for each other and giving company to people. What a beautiful, loving community we have here. And I see the love of God demonstrated here in this church. I mentioned earlier how the church these days is known more for hate than for love. And I think that part of the problem is that what the world has heard is the church asking people to give up things, to live without. But it hasn't seen the counterbalance of the church filling people's lives with such love that leads people to be filled and to be flourishing so that those sacrifices don't sting quite as much. If we ask people to give up a former identity or a former community or love, What are we replacing that with? How do we love them better? I think of those in our church who are single. How are we being family to them and caring for them as they pursue Christian living at great cost to themselves? I think of our teenagers. How can we better support them as they stand against the cultural tide that they face? I think of those who have left homes or countries those who have come from families who oppose their faith? How do we welcome and embrace them and their background and provide for them? Just like God's love, our love must be love in action. It's been my experience that this sort of love is a long-term, quiet and patient love. It's not showy or shallow. There's been times when my non-Christian friends um, haven't agreed with my views on some matters and I've worried that I've lost their friendship for not joining in with the majority. There's times when I feel like a bit of an outsider because I can't join in on some of the things that they do. But I have noticed that they really appreciate that I hold to my views without judging them and that it's particularly those times when they're hurting when they're going through something bad that they seek me out. And I hope that they can see something of God's love in me. And I suspect that's what they're craving when the good times fade. Dear friends, please know that you are incredibly loved by God. His love for you does not waver. It does not stop. We have the proof in Jesus God has taken the initiative. His love endures forever. And as you experience this amazing love, don't let it stop with you. God's love is meant to be shared. So let me pray for us again, and then we'll stand to sing of God's great love. Father God, I pray that we, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, amen.